As you'll no doubt recall, in the Old Testament book of Job, the title character, Job, experiences a great deal of misfortune. And so famously, three of his friends show up to comfort him. And perhaps even more famously, these three botch their assignment royally. They end up blaming Job for all that has befallen him, and they offer platitudes and banalities when Job poses questions to which they don't have answers. And I bring Job up this morning, and particularly I bring up Job's friends this morning, because while these three friends are far from paragons of pastoral counseling, they nonetheless give us a very helpful articulation of the earliest Israelite understanding of God. For everything these three friends say to Job bespeaks the theology held by the rest of the community. Or, in other words, by paying close attention to what Job's friends say, we then get an idea of what the ancient community thought God was like. And so, consider then these words spoken by Job's friend Zophar. In effort to describe God, Zophar says, quote, Who can fathom the mysteries of God? Who can fathom the mysteries of God? Now, I bring up Zophar this morning, and I bring up Job and his three friends to underscore this very point, that more than anything else, God was, to this ancient community, essentially unknowable, a complete mystery. His ways and his wants and his will entirely inscrutable. And so when Zophar says to Job, who can fathom the mysteries of God, he's not just offering another banality. He's instead voicing his community's most essential conception of God. Well, so then, let's fast forward now some 1,500 years from Job's day some 1,500 years dominated by this understanding of God's essence as being unknowable. And now enter onto the scene a young man named Jesus. A young man who, like all other Jewish boys and girls, grew up hearing about how mysterious Israel's God was and how inscrutable were all of his ways. And so consider then how utterly significant these words were, these words from our gospel lesson we just heard Larry read. Consider how significant these words were then to the people who first heard them. Sitting with his disciples on the night he would be betrayed, Jesus said to them, and I quote, anyone who has seen me has seen God. Do you understand what an audacious claim this was for Jesus to make? Anyone who has seen me has therefore seen the otherwise mysterious, inscrutable, unknowable God. Do you understand how audacious, in fact, do you understand how blasphemous such a claim was? But moreover, 
Do you understand how welcome this claim was for anyone who actually believed it? Here, after all this time, after all this speculation, after all this disputation surrounding who God was and what God was like here, for those who believed what he'd said here was an image of Israel's God, a living image of Israel's God, not some simple idol constructed by their own hands, like the familiar images of the neighboring gods, but instead here was a living image of their God. Anyone who has seen me, Jesus says, has seen God. Again, it is an utterly audacious statement. In fact, if untrue, it is a literally blasphemous statement. However, if true, the most consequential statement ever spoken. And so let's break down then what it meant. By saying this, Jesus was in effect telling his disciples, if you want to know the heart of God, if you want to know and understand God's ways and what God wills, then reflect on all you've seen me do. Reflect on all you've seen me teach and say. Reflect on how you've watched me spend my time and who you've watched me spend it with. Reflect on how you've seen me treat other people. Reflect on my entire character, everything about me. Do this, Jesus is saying, and you'll know what God is really like in God's fullness. And what's more, by extension, you'll know what God wants for you to be like as well. The point. After all of these thousands of years of mystery, millennia of mystery, these disciples in our scripture lesson today are now told that they are being given a picture of what God looks like operating under their own human conditions. Or as the Apostle Paul would later put it in our epistle lesson for today, they were seeing, quote, the image of the invisible God seeing the man, quote, in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Okay, so let's do a quick recap then. After millennia of mystery, here before these disciples, they believe, is a picture of what God is really like. And what's more, this picture walks with them and talks with them every day. What a situation, right? In fact, what a coup for them. But then no sooner has Jesus explained this to them, no sooner has he told them that in seeing him they were seeing God, than he's now telling them that he's about to leave. And so here now these words and hear them now with the ears of those first disciples. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. And then where I'm going, you cannot come. In other words, hey gang, check it out. Look at me and you see what God is like. 
Awesome, right? But then, bummer news, you won't be able to look at me much longer because I'm about to leave. Let's try to really put ourselves in these disciples' shoes for just a minute. If we were them, and if we'd just been told that to look at Jesus was to actually comprehend God, and if we were to really believe that, which they did, then how would we feel when seconds later we were also told we'd soon be losing this unique vision of God? Forget the fact that this also means we'll be losing our dear friend and our trusted leader. Let's just focus on the fact that with this news, we'll be losing our direct window into the very heart of Yahweh. Our very direct picture for how we ourselves are supposed to live and move and have our being in the world. How, I ask you, would we respond to this news? How would we feel? Not good. Pretty bummed out. In fact, that's probably far too casual a way to put it. I dare say the best word to describe it is that we'd be devastated. Well, that's precisely the reaction we see from these disciples. Where are you going? They ask, well, where are you going? If you leave, what will we do? And how will we understand? Will we just be plunged right back into utter mystery again? Why are you taking this away from us? Why are you taking you away from us? And most central to it all, how are we supposed to know what God wants of us if you're no longer here to show us. Well, so hear now how Jesus responds to these questions. Jesus says, and I quote, Fear not, for I have so much more to show you. In fact, I have more to show you than you can now bear. More than you can now bear. And then he goes on, but for that I will send to you the Holy Spirit who will lead you into all truth. And the Holy Spirit will bring glory to me by making my way known to you. In other words, all the mystery and all the inscrutability all the misunderstanding and all the uncertainty you felt all this time about who God is and what God wants from you, it has been made known to you through seeing me, Jesus is saying, through watching me, through observing me, but because I in my human mortality cannot be everywhere at all times and thus cannot be seen everywhere and by everyone, therefore the very essence of myself will soon come to you through my spirit. And that will make further known to you who I am, and thus that, through you, will make known to the world what God and God's fullness is like. Having said all of that, let me now explain why this is all relevant for us today. 
Today, according to the Christian calendar, is Trinity Sunday, a day set aside each year to reflect on the completeness of the Holy Trinity, on that divine relationship that has traditionally been rendered as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this particular date is chosen for Trinity Sunday because as of last week at Pentecost, the story the Christian calendar has been telling us has reached a sort of culmination. If you'll remember, starting in Lent, we, through the eyes of the disciples, began grappling long and hard with questions about who God is and what God's purposes are in the world. Then with those disciples, after having learned so much of God through Christ, we experienced the agony of watching him be crucified by Rome. Then with those disciples, we experienced Christ's shocking resurrection from the dead, demonstrating to them and to us that he had overcome death. Then, 40 days after that, we, with those disciples, watched this resurrected Jesus withdraw from us into heaven at the ascension, thereby demonstrating to them and to us that not only had he overcome death, but that because he had, he was now in charge of the world, that his reign had now begun. And then, 40 days after that, and for our purposes Last Sunday, we, with those disciples, then experienced Christ's Spirit poured out on us. Experienced Christ's Spirit come over us in a way that we could never begin to articulate, but in a way that would never leave us the same again. Emboldening us, enlivening us, invigorating us, empowering us, whispering to us, courage, dear hearts. That is the arc of the story that we have been following since February. And that story reached its culmination last week as the Holy Spirit came over those first disciples and thus over us at Pentecost. And so here then is why Trinity Sunday falls today. Because with the impartation of the Holy Spirit, the world has now witnessed the revelation of God and God's fullness. We now know God as the creator of the universe, the all-powerful and fully transcendent covenant partner with Israel. We now know God as son, that is, as the man named Jesus, who through his very life made known to those who followed him the very mystery of God. And we now know God as Holy Spirit, the very energy of Jesus who even today still demystifies God for us and who, if we'll but only listen for his voice, leads us into all truth. Even those truths that in Christ's words can feel almost, quote, too much for us to bear. And while this may all seem impractical, while it may just sound like a bunch of theology that makes little difference in our actual lives, I assure you it makes all the difference in the world. Because we must understand our theology serves as our lens for understanding everything, for interpreting the world, 
Our theology serves as a pair of glasses through which we understand and see everything. And so it is therefore vital that we know that God is not a complete mystery to us. That in the person of Jesus we have seen a very important picture, the very best possible picture of what God is like operating under human conditions. And moreover, that that picture is the thing that ought to inspire the way we live and move and have our being in the world. Meanwhile, however, it is also vital that we know that Jesus, our picture of God, is not static. It is vital that we also know that Jesus is not done speaking to the world. It is vital that we also know that the same spirit that animated him on earth animates us, his body on earth, even yet. Which is to say it is vital that we know that God's revelation to the world is not over. That it continues to this very day. That God is still working through the Holy Spirit to bring about a closer and closer approximation of his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. All of this we are called to realize on Trinity Sunday. And with it, that through the Holy Spirit, we as the body of Christ are now the image of the invisible God on earth, that it is on us. Family, it was one year ago today that I preached my trial sermon before you. One year ago today, it was Trinity Sunday of last year when we first begun this journey together. It will forever be one of the greatest, most significant, most humbling, most pivotal moments of my life. That day when I stood right here before you and presented my heart to you as a pastor. And when you heard my heart and responded to it and thus to me by responding, yes. And friends, what a year it has been. In one year, we've had a break-in in our child enrichment center that garnered widespread media coverage. We've had 27 beloved members pass away. We've been forced to withdraw from worship in our sanctuary due to a pandemic, the likes of which our nation hasn't seen in a century. And now, amid it, we're grappling with how best to respond to one of the most pivotal and important moments in American history as it pertains to race relations, systemic injustice, and matters of human equality. And I stand before you as your pastor right now and I openly confess to you that I don't have all the answers for how to navigate the realities that we are walking through as a family. But I also stand before you as your pastor and I vow to you this. We will walk through this with courage in our hearts and with our eyes wide open to the realities before us and we will become stronger because of it. And so then I ask you to reaffirm today that which you affirmed one year ago today. 
which is that you trust me, that you trust my heart and my sincerity and my spirit of discernment, and that you will believe me when I say that every word I speak and that every direction in which I lead will be born not of that which Paul calls the spirit of the world, that spirit that issues in enmities and divisions and quarreling and factions, but instead that every word I speak and every direction I lead will be born of my best discernment of the fruit of the Spirit. That you will trust how sincerely I mean it when I say that I will be leading as best I know how through the lens of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and generosity and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. I vow to you that this is how I have been leading and that this is how I will continue to lead and that this is how I will always lead so long as I am fortunate enough to be your pastor. That I vow to you. Family, we have been called together for a time such as this. And Trinity Sunday steps in to remind us that we have been called together not just to talk about God, but to be the image of the invisible God. That we have been called to show the world what God's way on earth looks like. And so I ask us today to consider how we might do that. How we might not only be a community that says the right things and that believes the right things in hard moments, but also a community that does the right things. A community that through our words and our deeds makes known to the world and particularly makes known to Anderson County the image of the invisible God. Again, I don't have all the answers for how we begin doing that. But I vow to do everything as a pastor I can to help us discern how we begin doing that. And so having said that, let me now tell you a step that resonates deeply with my spirit and thus that I am pleased to share with you. This week, I and my friend Ancoma Anderson, the pastor of Welfare Baptist Church, connected to discuss the possibility of a prayer event that would bring the entire community together to cast the images and the issues of the moment in the light of worship, bringing to the four questions of racial injustice that so desperately need to be addressed, and offering an opportunity for us to confess our desire to see change, for us as a community to consider what steps might be taken so as to affect change, and for us to unite as a community committed to bringing about change. As Ancoma and I dreamed of what this event might be like, we knew we wanted an event that would challenge us, an event that would not sidestep or sugarcoat the tensions of the moment, 
an event that would not try to hasten the conversation forward to a false sense of kumbaya, but instead an event that would bring everything taking place in the world into the light of God's love and God's desire for justice in his kingdom. Well, having said that, I'm pleased to announce that Anderson County officials were immediately enthusiastic about this idea and that the event is scheduled to take place this Saturday, June 13th at 2 p.m. in the Civic Center parking lot. It is titled, Let Justice Roll Down, Standing in Solidarity Through Praise and Prayer. And I won't bog us down in details of the event right now, those will be forthcoming, but I do want to quickly note that plans are already set for how we will conduct such an event while meanwhile abiding by proper social distancing recommendations. Family, I sincerely believe that we have an opportunity through an event such as this to begin showing that as white Christians, we are listening. Listening to the pleas of our black brothers and sisters as they urge us to see that there are injustices in our society that desperately need to be addressed. And likewise, that we are listening to the Holy Spirit as it is calling us to respond to these pleas. To respond not by showing up pretending to have the answers, but to respond by showing up in solidarity and simply saying, here we are. It feels right in my spirit that by participating in an event like this, by showing up and simply saying, here we are. It feels right in my spirit that in so doing, we are reconfessing our belief in the Holy Trinity. Confessing that there is a God whose ways are higher than our ways. Confessing that God sent his son to make known to us those higher ways. And meanwhile, confessing that his spirit continues all these years later to lead us into the truths of those higher ways, even and most particularly into truths that have far too long seemed too much to bear. Family, let's allow this particular truth on this particular Trinity Sunday this truth that in our race relations we have far too long fallen short of God's higher ways. Family, let's allow this particular truth on this particular Trinity Sunday to no longer be a truth too much for us to bear. Let us confess it. Let us repent of it. And let us show up Saturday at 2 p.m. and let us show up every day thereafter with and for our brothers and our sisters of color saying, here we are. Here we are. And may we trust that as we do, and as we begin the work of bringing about change, that in so doing, we are following the Spirit's lead being the body of Christ on earth and presenting to the world the image of the invisible God.
all my love to you. Amen.